We've got a packed show today. Today, we're going to cover yet another Supreme Court ethics scandal, this one involving Justice Alito. We'll also talk about more questions about COVID's origins. We'll check in on Prime Minister Modi's state visit to the U.S. and help you make sense of our relationship with the world's largest democracy. We'll also look at some new national data that shows some alarming trends about student achievement. And then we'll have a debate over whether the government should limit food assistance to healthy food options. All of this and more on today's episode of The Lost Debate Show, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ravi, what's up in Austin? You're still there? Yep. 100 degrees plus. Uh, still loving the city. We had a. am here for the National Charter Schools Conference, and I haven't been able to attend a lot of stuff just because I've had so many meetings uh, around the work at the branch. But last night there was a, a dinner honoring 60 years of service of a guy named Dr. Howard Fuller. And if people don't know who he is, you should look him up. He's written some interesting books and he was featured prominently in Waiting for Superman. And he's the kind of guy who would be a nationally recognized civil rights leader, like in the broadest possible way, if we were living in a sane world. But, but because mm-hmm. he's a big supporter of different um, aspects of school choice, he's a hero to some, a villain to others. And, you know, I, in a, I think he's one of those people who I think time will be very kind to him because he's really stuck up for the most vulnerable in the society and, and put himself on the line. And he gave a 30 plus minute speech about the state of this sort of coalition of people, what we call the sort of education reform community. And he spoke a lot of truths and it was, it was really inspiring. And so I'm, I'm heading from here to Mississippi and then New Orleans and then back to New York. So I'm basically just going to all the hottest places in America over the next week. And I think when we talk about the NAEP scores that just came out later in the show, it'll demonstrate just how important sticking up for particularly underprivileged students is today with our the state of our education system. Yeah, I I was struck listening to him just thinking about, you know, he challenged us like the people in the room and he was basically like this is the most comfortable movement in american history if it is a movement and he was like you know we need to be working harder i think he was you know he's one of those people who i think is almost an ambassador to a period of time that was less cynical and less about the job itself like i think a lot of people are careerists in this so-called movement now whereas he comes at it really from the perspective of an activist and somebody who's sacrificed a lot for the greater good. And it just reminded me just how far we are from anything resembling what we need in sort of the education debates right now. ProPublica, which we seem to be talking about a lot, which is a nonprofit organization that does investigative journalism, uh, found that Justice Alito had taken a trip in 2008 to Alaska with hedge fund manager Paul Singer and rode on Singer's private jet uh, on a trip that would have cost apparently $100,000 each way. And they were planning to run an article and uh, Justice Alito uh, in a, I think, a you know, unprecedented move took to the pages of the Wall Street Journal before the ProPublica article came out and defended himself. And he basically made two arguments um, one was that he did not know that Singer uh, eventually had like business before the court, which was the main argument that ProPublica was making, was that this guy wound up having multiple cases before the court that uh, Justice Alito presided over. So Alito said he didn't know. Uh, and two, he said that he, he basically lawyered his way through and said he wasn't required to disclose this trip because of this was like the, the private jet was a residence, according to the definition that Alito has. And there's like a loophole in the disclosure of gifts that says you don't have to disclose staying at somebody's residence. Ricky, I'm we're well past the point where we need to have some kind of clear and sensible ethics yeah. regulations on the Supreme Court. And I think we also, I mean, a third defense he could have come up with is, well, at least there weren't any Hitler statues and paintings on the right. private jet. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I, obviously this this is far and wide and 
pretty pervasive in our court. And I think the wisest way to do this is just to have like a forward running reform, because I think there are, there were a lot of ambiguities and loopholes that people clearly wiggled their way through. And I think we just need to say, okay, like bygones are bygones. Let's figure out how to fix this now and not adjudicate what it seems like every day there's a new story about somebody on the court doing something sketchy. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. And he, he <laughs> there are a couple of things. One is he actually, Thomas, I'm not going to say to his credit, because Thomas, there, there's just so many problems with Thomas's ethics, like generally right now. But Thomas at least said, well, OK, moving forward, I'm going to comply. And I, of course, I would have disclosed this moving forward. Alito just is super defiant. And he said, quote, a seat that, as far as I'm aware, would have been otherwise vacant. So he's saying, oh, well, this was just a seat. Whether you know, if I didn't sit on it, nobody was going to take it. So he's basically saying it doesn't have value. That's crazy. Uh, like if you were to apply that logic to other situations, like members of Congress who have disclosure rules or people running yeah. for office, nobody sensible would argue that that is not something of value. Uh, the second thing is he said he didn't know that this that singer eventually had uh, business before the court, and I'm like, well, this is why disclosure is important because if you would have disclosed this trip reporters would have dug in and there actually was reporting at the time, um, at least in one of the cases that Singer, this was a huge victory for Singer, yada, yada, yada. But a good reporter would have looked at previous disclosures and said, oh, Alito went on a trip with Singer a couple of years ago. Singer now is connected to, he you know owns this company that has business before the court. They would raise questions about Alito's impartiality in the case. And in a sensible world, Alito would have recused himself from that to just like, taken himself out of it and said, you know, the, this obviously has very big appearance of of lack of impartiality. And I'm going to just recuse myself from this case because this guy has given me something, you know, six figure, uh, six figures of value he's given me. And so, like, it's just common sense stuff. And it just makes me it's so depressing that we're handing lifetime appointments over to people who feel like don't even feel the slightest bit of duty to you know, abide by just basic questions of ethics that everybody else in government takes for granted. Well, and also another interesting uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal as well is we touched last week, I guess, was it, on um, the new emerging questions about COVID's origins and how three uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology scientists were reportedly, according to um, the Substack Twitterverse Schellenberger folks, um, were the patient zeros in the COVID pandemic. And that story since has been picked up by the journal, who evidently has a good deal of confidence in the fact that the government sources, which were anonymous and protected by Schellenberger, are indeed um, legitimate sources and w within our own government. And there's um, also a response op-ed in the New York Times about how the government must say what it knows about COVID's origins. So basically, um, shedding light on the fact that this appears to be internal information that the that the government had classified that we knew for quite a while that there's a good chance that patient zeros were quite literally the scientists working on gain of function um, SARS and MERS like viruses in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Yeah. And, you know, this is, you know, we said back, you know, I think it must have been last week, hey, like what's going on? How come the major outlets haven't started reporting on this. So it looks like they have. And the New York Times piece you're talking about, and, and I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce her name, Zainab Terfeki. Uh, she has a, I, I recommend everybody to read this piece because what she's saying is, and I'll, I'm going to quote from her in a couple places. She says, this is yet another demonstration that almost all the most significant information we've had about COVID's possible relationship to scientific research in Wuhan has come out in dribs and drabs. Uh, from the hard work of independent researchers, journalists, open records advocates, yeah. and others not directly from our government choosing to act with transparency. Uh, she says, a few people can't control public conversations. Uh, she's basically comparing it to previous instances in which um, the government hasn't, you know, been forthcoming and tried to control it. So she says a few people can't control the public conversations, especially after tens of million people have died and attempts to do so will only backfire. The public deserves to know this information. So far, some of the details about Wuhan scientists who are sick and including their names have come from news reports citing unnamed sources. So some skepticism is required, but why hasn't the Biden administration confirmed or denied these details? And this is where I am. I'm like, look, like, why can't you just say 
if you think it's false, say it's false. If it's not false, then this is a big deal. And you should come out and say, yes, yeah. we do have sources that say this is where it came from. Like, I just, I just don't get it. I, I just, I actually don't understand. Like, it's almost like the JFK files to me. It's like, well, what's, why, like, why after all these years are we releasing everything? It's like, what are you hiding? Like, just say what it is. You know, I mean, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but I think we probably have a pretty vested interest in not um, releasing any of potentially our culpability and, and sending funding to these labs and not having adequate oversight about gain of function research. I mean, there is I'm not I'm not going to say that that's how necessarily or what's behind the classification process. But I can tell you, I interviewed Rand Paul probably like four or five months ago about COVID. And um, I can't even remember what revelation it was that inspired that interview. But he was basically like buzzing over the fact that there is so much that he can see because he's a member of Congress that that is completely classified to the public that he can't say anything about. And like that was the real headline to me in talking to him. Like he said, we're more obstructionist than China is in terms of keeping things under under wraps and things that in his view and in his mind very much are in the public interest or at the very least should just be out there for the sake of not being obstructionist. Yeah, there's just like such a, you talk about the public interest, right? Why is it important to have this conversation? I've talked to a bunch of people about this. We're like, well, we've moved on from COVID. Well, I'm like, we're, do, we're conducting experiments and we have laboratories all over the world, both the United States and other countries. And Terfecki does a good job uh, and Matt Ridley's book does the same of just laying out how unsafe a lot of these places are. So the question one is like, this is about accountability moving forward to ensure that we don't repeat this again. Uh, it's about transparency. Our government should tell us uh, when like issues like the origins of a global pandemic, like if they have information on that, they should be sharing it. Um, and then there's another layer of the, the accountability, which is whether it's the US government, the Chinese government, different institutions that were funding, journalists, politicians. This information is critical to say who was right, who was wrong, who was punished unjustly, um, you know, what what theories have been floated are correct or incorrect. Like this is like absolutely like it, it, when you're ranking the importance of accuracy, transparency, this is at the top of lists, like why we had yeah. a COVID pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think it also declassifying things and just being transparent about them would do a great deal in relieving what I think is just an epistemic crisis in terms of how we parse out fact and fiction in our society and and sling around words like conspiracy theorists on things or accusations that people are out of their minds for things that ultimately ended up coming to fruition or potentially being a very real possibility. I mean, looking at Tom Cotton's early interviews and the way that he was smeared by the Times as parroting fringe theories for saying we should at the very least not like rule out the fact that a lab leak is possible is just it's it's a crazy time capsule to look back at how we treated emerging evidence and competing theories as fact and fiction in yeah. such a serious way. Yeah, and it's possible. Maybe, maybe at some point, you know, as we'll talk about, the Biden administration is busy this week. Like, maybe, maybe they come out and say this is false, right? At which point we'll talk about it. But until and unless they do, we have to treat this very seriously because yeah. it's the easiest thing to just say, no, this is wrong. There are no sources. Um, now, I can also, like, in there, like, if they, one thing they could say is it's really hard when it's an unnamed source to to say that there isn't sources saying X, Y, and Z, but they could say yeah. we have no known intelligence that confirms what they're saying. Yeah. Um, and obviously, like, Why not? and the, the U.S. government's huge and dysfunctional in many ways. So they could be like, look, like, if such people It could exist, be three nut cases. That's bring it fine. to us. Yeah. yeah. So whoever those people know. are, they could be like, look, we have, we have, this has not gotten to the president's desk. If you're out there in the intelligence community, come to us and share this with us. I don't know. Like, but somebody should add some clarity to this discussion within the yeah. government itself. We at the branch uh, are actually pretty involved in journalism in India. Uh, we have uh, one of the biggest podcasts in India, the Desi Crime Podcast. And uh, we're also working on a separate project with Crooked Media with a, a longer investigatory podcast that will be coming out in about a year or less than a year. 
And uh, we care a lot about the state of the world's so-called largest democracy, the, the largest country in the world. I'm obviously of Indian origin. Uh, and today is a really momentous day for a lot of people uh, who care a lot about India because Prime Minister Narendra Modi is in the United States and as we're speaking, is on a state visit uh, to the United States. And this is not an ordinary state visit. Like there are state visits that come and go, nobody knows about it. This is a state visit that uh, has probably gotten more attention than almost any I've ever seen. There are like, I, I counted like seven articles in the New York Times about this. It's This is dominating coverage. You go to The Economist, it's basically got a whole section and basically um, a whole magazine on this. And these pieces are interesting from because they, they range from Narendra Modi single, like this is the new model of a leader to what kind of food are they serving? And then, hey, is this actually a democracy, India? And should we be making a bigger deal of some of the trends that we're seeing in this country? And that last question, you know, as interesting as Modi's personal life is and what food he's eating and whether he does yoga, that stuff is fine. But let's talk about India as a democracy. Uh, and as a, a global model for free speech and civil society. And to do that, we're inviting on Aryan Misra, who is the host and co-creator of the Daisy Crime podcast. He's a uh, he's a producer behind the scenes of this podcast, Lost to Show, and he's also helping us with our Crooked podcast. Aryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ravi. In recent months, India... Uh, the authorities have raided the BBC offices, accusing them of tax evasion and ordered them before the high court in a defamation case after they aired a documentary that was critical of, of Modi. Amnesty International was targeted and forced to shut down its operations a few years before that. Recently, they've government has arrested journalists on terrorism charges. Multiple opposition leaders, including very prominent opposition is opposition leaders have been arrested. India now ranks 161 out of 180 on the World Press Freedom Index. Um, Jack Dorsey has made uh, uh, allegations that he was basically trying to be coerced and shut down um, to for not complying with orders uh, from Modi and his government. And so I could keep going, Ariane, yeah. but how did it come to pass, Ariane? This is a big question that a man in Narendra Modi, who just in 2002 was denied a visa to enter the United States for allegedly condoning a massacre of Muslims in Gujarat to the point where he's being celebrated and welcomed into the White House. Small question for you, Aryan. Explain, yeah. explain how that's possible. There is a tendency to pour Narendra Modi and other strongman leaders across the world, you know, Bolsonaro, Erdogan, in Trump's mold so that the American reader and consumer can understand it, which is why Modi is, it doesn't make sense. It's this 2002, this, this somebody who condoned, uh, some call it a genocide, and now he is celebra celebrated. So it doesn't really make sense to the American mind because it's portrayed in such a, in a, in a narrative bereft of context. Now, Modi comes from a country where he was once a chaiwala. A chaiwala is somebody, he was a tea vendor. So when you compare, you know, Modi to Trump, you need to, forget, you need to remember Trump comes from a, you know, a rich family. Modi comes from almost nothing. And so there are parts of Modi, the story of Modi, the character of Modi that appeals to so many Indians because they can relate with it. So that's part of the story. Then also part of the story is the opposition party in India that was, you know, liable for corruption over the several decades that they ruled. You talk about India. Congress party the for, Congress for party. listeners. Basically, dominated India for fifty years and was an outgrowth of Gandhi's movement. You know, Nehru, like you know, most prominently, and Indira Gandhi, Nehru's daughter, and that Gandhi family basically was running the country up until the BJP party, which is Modi's party. Uh, they had, you know, BJP had some wins, right? Uh, yeah. But they, Vajpayee, but like they, Modi really was the turning point. They never consolidated it on, until Modi came into power. But ever since 2002, right, uh, the cracks in the Congress party are, is something that the BJP seized on and Modi seized on. And the story of Modi was sold so effectively to Indians that his entire image changed. Now, his image changed in India, but in the recent years, we've seen his image change in America, right? And I think that's the heart of the question that you're asking, where 
once America banned this man from coming, and now America is celebrating this man um, when he comes. And you know, there are two sides of this. One side is sort of this activist class, which is saying, Modi should absolutely not enter India. He doesn't represent a democracy. He's breaking or its enter structures. Enter US, you mean? Yeah, yeah. enter US, sorry, and breaking its democratic uh, norms and structures. And to that, I say, I mean, that's a slippery slope. Let no leader enter any other country because each leader of a major country is liable for one kind of tragedy or the other. Because the bigger question protecting a democracy is what does India bring to the table when it comes to democracy, when it comes to China, when it comes to Russia? And so I think it's very childish. The articles I've been reading as well that have been completely apprehensive of any engagement on US's behalf when it comes to Modi. I think that's childish. I think the more nuanced conversation is how do we go forward in interacting with this country, in interacting with its people and its leaders? The most, it's the biggest diaspora that exists. It's bigger than China and Mexico. So we can't disregard them. We can't disregard talking to their leader. How do we, how do we conduct relationships, diplomatic relationships with them? And I think because of that, there has been a change in how America is dealing with Modi. They have to. They can't disregard Modi because of the people and the country he represents. Just to put some color on just how dramatic this flip has been, this is someone who was denied a visa for roles in um, religious riots for what we've considered in America severe violations of religious freedom, was banned for a decade, and now today flipped to 2023 where he's meeting with Biden during his state visit and in a press statement from the White House, they referred to warm bonds of family and friendship between the two countries. So it's a really dramatic turn. And I think also, Ariane, I'd be curious to hear your take on how other major players and and kind of an emerging block of Russia and China and um, other allies um, kind of force America perhaps a little bit more to be more more open and, and warm and receptive. So India has a fr- has had a fraught relationship with alliances ever since the Second World War, right? So India has never directly, once we got freedom from the British, said that we are with the Russians or we are with the Americans, which has led to a very fraught history where sort of the CIA was for a while against the Indian nuclear program. And so India was siding with the Russians. And there's this been this up and down relationship because America was siding with Pakistan for the longest time. And for those of you who don't know, India and Pakistan are adversaries. So India never outrightly commits to any one country as its only ally. Because of this, we know India hasn't directly called out Russia yet for the Ukraine war, right? Um, and so India, this, this this game of fine balance that India plays and US needs to A, remember where India is coming from. You need to remember the history of a country. You know, something Kissinger pointed out with how uh, America's policy with China was so skewed because Americans just didn't seem to understand the Chinese. They, 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 saw these countries in the sort of eastern part of the world in such a Eurocentric way where you you don't realize that some people, you know, some people are collectivist by nature. There, there are some people have different aspirations in life. And I think to understand India, you need to be a little nuanced. And why I think we're doing a good job by talking about India here, an article, for example, you sent me today, Ravi, it starts off and it's written in The Atlantic, a publication I really like um, and written in response to Modi's visit. And it says it starts off with, quote, but in 2002, a train was set ablaze in a Muslim neighbor in Gujarat. This is in reference to the 2002 Gujarat riots. Those killed were Hindu nationalists. And I read this. It's in The Atlantic. And I go, no, no, no those killed in the train were just Hindu pilgrims. They weren't Hindu nationalists, right? But when you make in Americans read that the what incited the Gujarat riots was the death of Hindu nationalists, which is completely wrong, and I have a feeling this article is going to be edited with the correction later on, I think it's such a misunderstanding of a people and a continent because we are trying to oversimplify this really complicated issue. Well, in our answer... The, one of the big questions I think people have about Modi is how much of his popularity has to do with the fact that he has leaned into the Hindu identity that he sees in the country, like Hindustan, right? And how much of it has to do with other things, the economic growth of India, the the alleged anti-corruption efforts. I think I'm, I'm yeah. not sure exactly how much of that has stuck, but he certainly ran on it. Like if you were, if you were rake ordering those three, how much of his, his appeal 
would you attribute to each? And is there another hidden variable, like just his general, you know, aesthetic uh, appeal, like his sort of everyman appeal? Yeah, I think in 2014, when he came into power, I would have ranked it, you know, Modi the image, anti-corruption, and Hindutva. I think Modi, the image, the story of Modi, that's still number one. That's still there. You know, uh, I come from a Modi supporting family and many of my family members, they still say, now we're not big fans of BJP, but Modi, Modi is our savior. So there's that Modi narrative that still sells. I think that's number one, the narrative of who Modi is. But I think the corruption and Hindutva have switched. They have definitely switched places. I think the moment, uh, I think the government themselves realized that they weren't delivering on their anti-corruption and development promises. They realized that, you know, let's uh, let's uh, reach out to the pathos of the people and pull the string of the Hinduism aspect. And now I think that's what's playing out to a large degree. Of course, there are other facets of de- development, India's geopolitical strategic position that, you know, I would argue Modi has improved. But I think at the heart of it, what's tugging at people's heart is the Hindutva and the Hinduism. Yeah, I, th- I think like the big question is, well, what... Given the fact that this is the largest diaspora, you talked about 18 million migrants, Mexico is the second at 11.2. Inward remittances in 2022 were 108 billion. Yes. Uh, there are 25 executives at S&P 500 companies of Indian origin. And obviously you look around some of the biggest, like comp- you know, tech companies in the world are run by Indian Americans or Indians. Yeah, Indian Americans plus Indians, just straight up. Yeah. And so this is a very powerful uh, diaspora community. And the question becomes, all right, we talk about the government, right? I, I agree, like, not allowing Modi in is, is, would be, it would be a, definitely a double standard. I do think that the Biden administration could be pushing more the democracy elements here. It's certainly the British government when the BBC, they were super weak. That's their own, yeah. you know, affiliated press group. I mean, that's, that to me, I think Sunak looked really weak there, but I just, I tend to think the U.S. government could be stronger on this, but I understand real politic, yada, yada, yada. But the diaspora community and corporations, you know, Musk, for example, was singing Modi's praises. He's obviously, you've done some research into this. Musk has had a hair trigger for pulling down content when India asks for it. Uh, He has business relationships in India and obviously has grand plans for Tesla. One CEO after another, Tim Cook, was down there doing a um, an unveiling of an Apple uh, store and saying amazing things. Like, what would you ask of the diaspora community and tech community as it relates to, like, raising issues of dissent and civil society and the rule of law? See, even within the diaspora community, there are many that there. There's an odd number of people that love Modi and BJP. So I'm not going to I'm not going to address that sector of it, but it's just something to keep in mind that there is a they love him. So it doesn't make sense if I preach to them criticize Modi. But to the to the chunk of the diaspora community that does realize that uh, civil liberties are really being um, struck down in India at the moment. To them I would just say be honest. You know, you left your country to look for a better life outside and you came here and you you got that. You got to see what liberties are like. And now when you're seeing those same liberties being revoked in your home country, there is radio silence. Um, so just to, just some amount of introspection, you know, speak right. up. See, if you don't agree with it, if you're already a Modi fan, good for you, right? You have your argument. So that's not who I'm preaching to. But to those that really, there are many people who feel there are things that are going awry but are not talking. To them, I would say just, you know, um, speak up. Do you feel personally like you run one of the biggest podcasts in India? You and I are working on a project that without a doubt, the government's not going to love. Do you I have no idea what you're that- talking about. <laughs> Do you fear for yourself and the larger Desi crime effort for even saying some of the things you're saying right now or even more pointed things that um, we'll have to say in the future? You know, I went down this rabbit hole of Indian satire a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I remember early 2010s, India was catching up with sort of the American comedy scene, right? Because Twitter and social media allowed Indians to see how Americans just make fun of their government, no matter who it is, you know, they make fun. They know how to take a joke and make fun. Um, And so 
I saw Indian creators. Um, one of the accounts, shout out AIB, was the biggest. They used to make satire videos on the then Congress Party, and there was this feeling of cultural evolution happening. I was living the cultural evolution. You know, these videos were getting viral. Everybody was. It was funny. We all made fun of the government. And we take for granted that cultural evolution is linear, but it's not linear, right? And it can easily go up and down as history goes along. I mean, on a large enough scale, sure, the trajectory is positive, but I saw the linear trajectory and then I saw it go down as soon as Modi came in and the few years after that. That channel no longer exists, the one that I called out, the one that I used to make those satire videos. You know, humor is no longer part of the... Um, dissident movement because the moment there is jokes against the you know the bjp or modi they get taken down on twitter or youtube or whatever i mean look at the example of the leader of the opposition party rahul gandhi made a joke about modi and a defamation lawsuit against him was filed because he made fun of all modis and therefore made an ethnic joke right and so a defamation mm. lawsuit had him evicted from the parliament um so now tying this back to myself after seeing this and living this as a kid in india Yes, I, I, I do feel that projects in India are susceptible to um, the fancies of the government in power. And um, yeah, uh, yes, I feel that. Short answer is yes, it, it does feel weird. Well, Narendra, if you're listening, look, you're powerful. You're the most popular leader in the world by yeah. some estimations. You can weather the storm of satire and criticism. and all. You'll, you'll be just fine. I think like for future generations, what I would ask is like, I know it's complicated. There, there's a lot of good there that I think like even the biggest critics of Modi should acknowledge and I, and they get certain things wrong, like the farmers protests, which we won't go into. I think the U S you and I, Ariane have talked about this a lot, how like these Hollywood stars exactly. are like, I stand with the farmers and they had no idea what the hell they were talking about. Yeah. So like the, there is, there's a lot that the press gets wrong, but what they are getting right in some of these pointed pieces is, is without a doubt, India is backsliding as a democracy and it is unnecessary. Modi is going to get reelected no matter what. Exactly. He could he could invest in his own opposition media criticizing himself. He'll still get reelected. Yes. Uh, so like this is this is where I think leadership really matters because he, he he could use his popularity to shore up the Indian democracy for generations to come in a way that Gandhi did in some of his sacrifice and his language around pluralism, right? And people could debate the pluralism message of Gandhi forever, but what he was, what he did in being such a popular figure was lay a foundation for pluralism in India that lasted basically up now until BJP, right? Flawed as it was, his, his example, you know, was long lasting. And what I fear about Modi is like, he has the power to endure anything here. Yeah. Uh, he shouldn't be so sensitive. My one final point that I'd just like to add, there's the Modi will win no matter what, right? Because at the end of the day, India is a democracy when it comes to the voting structures. And people love BJP for now. and Modi. For, 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 now. for now it is, for now it is, yeah. sure. But I think Democrat, at the moment, it is one. And so, you know, Democrats don't like when the results of democracy aren't the, you know, it doesn't yield the results they want. But sometimes democracy leads to results you don't like. And Modi might be a result that you don't like, but he is an outcome of democratic structures, right? And 77% approval rating at the moment. He leads the world's biggest political party. BJP has 180 million members, which is bigger than the Chinese Communist Party. So people, but you, but you know that, like, yes, like, but the ballot box is not in isolation, right? Like, if you're if you're cracking down on press, like, you can have as much vote as you want and make it as clean as possible. But if people can't criticize the government, then that's not a clean election. Look, and once again, he will win no matter what happens. Exactly. But I think, like. Like we can't divorce his policies on freedom of speech from like the integrity of the ballot box, right? I absolutely agree, but which is where I think the reporting on Modi from foreign news media, because they're the ones that can accurately report, shouldn't focus on things that are either oversimplifying who Modi or who India is, or are talking about, you know, I'll give you an example. An article we shared was the fact that India is removing evolution and the periodic table. I mean, this was making the rounds in US, right? And you looked into, if you looked even an iota into what actually happened, it was just a change of the core structure and moving the periodic table and evolution from ninth grade to 12th grade. It wasn't like they were removing it. But 
But because of that Eurocentric vision, the moment you see uh, evolution being removed from one grade, you go, or oh, creationism, you tap school into those board meetings, things. moms school for bo- liberty. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's what I'm saying, which is a very America Eurocentric Yeah, yeah but that's a dumb people. frame. Let's just dismiss that's a dumb that frame. stupid so frame. Dismiss but that, like- and the criticism should be pointed towards these things, the BBC the BBC documentary being taken down. And these are the things we need to be talking about more and more. We should There shouldn't be radio silence because these are the things that matter. And I can tell you for a fact, Modi and Indians care about how we are thought by the world outside. Right, for sure. Yeah. Well, Ariane, thank you so much. Uh, folks out there, check out the Daisy Crime podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There's one mystery a week. And uh, when does it come out? It comes out on... Friday, US time, Saturday, India time. All right, Ariane, thank you so much. Ricky, the Nation's Report card, we call it NAEP, just released some data about 13-year-olds, and the data is not good. Horrendous. Um, What'd you say? Horrendous, like really... Horrendous. Yeah, that's the only word I have for it. So I'm just going to give you a couple rundowns of this. I mean, there's, and I think the biggest question is why, but this is a decline both since COVID and before COVID. Average comprehension of math has fallen back to levels last seen in the 1990s and reading scores have dropped lower than in 1971, the year the test was first introduced. Um, The performance gap between children of different backgrounds uh, has continued to grow at an alarming rate. So um, the uh, math and English skills of 13-year-olds were already dipping before 2020, uh, before the pandemic. Um, The decline in math and reading between 2020 and 2023 has mirrored um, similar trends that we've seen in NAEP, a drop of four points in reading and nine points in math. the math uh, drop is particularly stark and their the racial disparities have widened uh, and there's just a whole lot of bad here, Ricky. Yeah. And also just to layer in a little survey data that came out as well, um, one in 10 students said that they missed more than five days of school in the last month, which has doubled since 2020 before the pandemic. So that's uh, absenteeism is an issue as well. And the percentage of kids who read for fun recently went from 17% to 14%, which just continues to tumble. And I think, you know, there's This kind of falls into this larger thing that I'm seeing where like even writing about depression statistics with teens and stuff, there's a, a, an instinct to say like, oh, the pandemic caused this or it's, it's worse because of the pandemic. And like, yes, it exacerbated a lot of these things, but I think that's become such an easy little like, oh, this is, this is the cause and effect sort of situation that ignores the fact that this is a long and sustained trend that just it got exacerbated, but I think allows a lot of people to kind of dismiss the fact that this is a more fundamental issue at the core, particularly considering that the widening gaps are so staggering with students of color and lower performing students in general. Yeah, lower income kids too. So on the bottom of the decile uh, and quartile, way more stark um, differences uh, in um, their performance than at the top. But every every level students have have yeah. backslid. And the the key date seems to be 2012 when this trend began. And uh, one other piece of data here is reading for p- uh, pleasure has become less common with 31% of students reporting in 2023 that they quote, never or hardly ever read for fun. And this gets to some theories and your buddy, Jonathan Haidt, uh, tweeted, quote, the nation's report card just came out, scores dropping since 2020, but actually 40 years of progress reversed in dot, 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 2012, like so much else. Get the phones out of schools now, he said. So, Ricky, so different theories here as to what could be going on. I think of three theories. One is the pandemic, which could play a factor, but doesn't explain the trend starting in 2012. Second is like certain national reforms like Common Core, yada, yada, yada. But this data seems to be consistent across states, whether or not they went aggressive or not on the Common Core. Um, The third... I'm persuaded by what hate's saying because like it does seem like this stuff started to happen as we became more digitally distracted mm-hmm. and the yeah. students are saying that they're not reading for pleasure that certainly would explain some of the issues that we're seeing with reading comprehension. Yeah. I mean, it's worth noting that the majority, I think it's something like three quarters of schools have some sort of phone ban in place, but I think that's um, like 
the enforcement mechanisms are pretty sketchy and not great across the board. So I agree with yeah, Mike that that's like an issue. Yeah, but also it's like reading for pleasure is like outside yeah. of school mostly too. I, yeah. yeah, I think especially on the reading front and, um, you know, that's where we have the more dramatic drop. It's lowest since 1971 in terms of the scores. Um, I, I think there's a lot of misguided conversation about like, oh, it's not social media is not causing this or this or that, but it's about what it's displacing. And I think that that's what we kind of lose sight of sometimes is the amount of hours that kids are spending on devices, like somewhere like average of like four or five hours. Like you don't even have that much time in the day once you get home from school. It's a shocking amount of time. And we shouldn't be surprised that like if you fundamentally restructure what leisure time looks like as a child and you in my opinion, quite literally addict them to um, like digital heroin basically and not to dedicating yourself to reading a book or even just being bored and flipping through a magazine and reading an article. Like I, I think, I think technology is playing a much larger role in, in that, in, in allowing kids to curate themselves in their own free time, I would say is how I would put it. And I agree with height that this is a major issue. Yeah. This is one of those areas where, People sometimes could be so smart about something that they become dumb. And what I mean by this is people are like, well, let me, how do we know it's smartphones? Like, you know, we need to like slice and dice it. We'll never know. Like the data will never, there's no study that's going to tell you 100% certainty. It's yeah, one thing or the other. You have to use your common control. sense. Yeah. And like my common sense tells me whenever I'm looking at a young person or adults for that matter, they're staring at their phones. When I go into schools, even with schools with cell phone bans, they're not enforcing them a lot often. Um, yeah. But also like, and there's so much data, it's staggering. Um, and, you know, you can read almost any book on this, like I Generation or Johan Hari's Stolen Focus or whatever. There's just a gazillion books out there that talk about how it's not just the time you lose, but your inability to even practice the skill of paying mm -hmm. attention. And yeah. kids are, adults are struggling with this. Kids are struggling with this. To me, it's one of those things like, let's just call it for what it is. And what's really disappointing to me is you know, the Biden administration and rolling this data out, Secretary of Education is like, oh, we're alarmed. We're going to invest more resources and, you know, pandemic learning loss and all that. Great. Focus on the pandemic learning loss. I'm never going to be mad at you for that. But I think we're missing the biggest part of this, which is this lack of attention. Yeah. Like kids cannot pay attention. That's why they can't yeah. read and do math. Like they just don't, don't know how to have, pay attention anymore. We don't even have like the very basic like understanding of how this is affecting kids who've had iPads in their hands since they like day one. Like I think this is literally changing the way that their brains form and work and 100%. and their reward mechanisms and their their self control. And I I mean it's really I mean I I'm not I don't know what we could have done differently in retrospect except for now just saying going forward like let's ease into some caution with techno optimism and not plugging our kids in entirely because I think we have an uncontrolled social experiment that is just global and and terrifying and I think is is leading to declines in, in achievement like we're seeing. Well, you know, we had a listener, we, we talked about cell phones in schools recently. Um, we had a listener actually send in a voicemail on this subject. Uh, let's play this voicemail and then we'll react to it. Hi, Robbie. Hi, Ricky. Um, my name is Emily. I'm from North Carolina. Um, I'm a mother of a rising eighth grader and a seventh grader, and I wanted to comment on Something that was said during y'all's discussion about cell phones and uh, cell phone use, particularly in schools. Um, so at my boys' middle school, they are allowed to bring their phones, but they have to be turned off and in their backpack. It will get confiscated if um, they get caught with it, which I think is a great policy and has worked really well for us thus far. But the thing in y'all's conversation that got me a little triggered um, was when Ravi sort of offhandedly said, Oh, in the case of an emergency, like I know there's the the uh, uh, the argument of what if there's an active shooter? I want to I want to be able to get in touch with my kid. Well, we all know that you can like call the school and get in touch with your kid. And number one, I feel like that was really dismissive of the parents' perspective. I know you he's coming from an educator and a principal's perspective, and how cell phones are a distraction from the educational process. But from the parents' perspective, who's sending their kid to a very large uh, public school, I am thinking safety. And unfortunately, that is the world that we live in. Um, so, yeah, 
I, <laughs> it is something I think about and is very, very important to me is, is my kids' safety when I send them into that large public school every single day. Um, the other thing that I thought wasn't accurate at all was if there was a true emergency, there was an active shooter, there is no way that the thousands of parents could get through to their kids from the one person who's the administrative, you know, front desk person. There's no way the call is going to get through. There's no way that even if you did get through, that that person will be able to locate your child in the event of the lockdown. So um, as a mother of a rising eighth grader and seventh grader, I will continue to send my kids to public school with a cell phone for their safety. Thanks. Love the show. And keep doing what you're doing. So I think a couple of things here. One is there are different kinds of emergencies. So one is... Uh, you as a parent have an emergency, like there's, you know, a sick relative or the kid has an emergency, et cetera. Like whether that cell phone is turned off in their backpack or you're calling into the office, it's basically the same mechanism. Because if that phone is off in your backpack, their parent is not going to be able to get in touch with the kid without having to call the office. So I'll put that aside, which is the kind of like, I know there's so much focus on active shooter stuff, but that's the most likely scenario that people often are having conversations with parents about. It was like, how do I get in touch with my kid? And in that case, we're agree. I'm agreed with Emily that like it for all practical purposes, the vision that she has and the vision for I have wouldn't change that circumstance. Um, I think as it relates to active shooters, I think, um, and we have a, a staff member who had a conversation with yesterday who actually was in a active shooter incident that happened in her school. And the fact that everybody had phones and was calling in actually screwed up the response. And so I think like part of what I'm hearing from people and Uvalde was a whole mess on this front, but that had like, that had more to do with the people responding than the people calling in is that <clears throat> you have to make a trade-off, right? Like in the end, like the policy that Emily is saying, which is the kids have their cell phones off there in their backpacks that in and of itself also decreases the chance that that kid could have that cell phone in their hand and turned on and decreases the response time in some meaningful way. But Emily, like me, makes some kind of trade-off between concentration and the learning environment and the speed and the quantity at which students can communicate with the police and with their parents, right? Like in her case, the phone's off. Maybe it's in the backpack that's the back of the classroom. If there's an emergency, maybe you don't get to that phone or you, it takes you longer to get that phone on and all that time is critical. Uh, in my case, I might be a little bit more stringent, although like cell phones off in the backpack is like totally sensible and close enough to what my policy would be that I don't think there's a meaningful difference. But I guess my point is, don't mean to be flippant about it, I do think that we have to make tough choices and trade-offs about the accessibility of these phones. And in this case, I would be way more conservative than a lot of the people who want to have those kids have those phones on with them all the time because of some uh, marginal increase in safety that they think it brings. I would just add that this was the policy at my school, or I don't know if it had to necessarily be in your backpack, but it was just like, it cannot be seen. And they really put like the fear of God in our hearts if that ever happened. And like, it was really enforced and you got in a lot of trouble yeah. and that worked perfectly fine. It's just a matter of making sure that it was really enforced and that you absolutely could not see phones period. And like, yeah, I mean, kids were on their phones in the bathroom and stuff like that. That's probably the extent to it, but right. that worked very well. And I think if it's actually enforced, that's a good middle ground. Cause I'm sensitive to the fact that parents who are compelled to send their kids to school, like they, I mean, they want to be able to contact them if they feel that they need to. And if there is an emergency, I get it. And I felt more comfortable knowing I had a phone on me, on my person when, especially like going to a, a high school and stuff. I don't know. Just, I, I, I'm sympathetic to this argument and I agree with her that that's probably a pretty good policy as long as it's actually enforced. Right. Yeah. And I think what I would say to Emily is I, I, I totally hear you. I think like from the educator's perspective, the, the challenge comes where for every Emily who's like, okay, I'm okay with the, the phone being off and in the backpack, there's a um, hundred reasons from a hundred different people as to why that phone needs to be on and on the student. And then the policy starts to erode and it becomes really hard to enforce, right? Because then mm -hmm. you're in the you're in the business as an educator of litigating, well, okay, you know, this this parent's saying that Aunt Sally is sick 
and I need to, my, my daughter needs to have the phone on and I have to say, oh, is that a good reason versus dad is sick versus, um, you know, my child has, um, a severe, you know, is a, is diabetic. And I just want to know at all times, like how, you know, how she's doing and what her blood sugar levels are. And you start to have to litigate what's a good and bad reason to have your phone on at a given time. So it becomes really hard to enforce these standards. And then at a certain point, what a lot of educators do is they don't have a standard because they get worn out by it. And then you have a bunch of kids with their phones out all the time. Um, and teachers are unable to, to do anything about it because there's no mechanism to enforce it, right? So that's what I think people fear. So I think this is like anything in schools, you have to balance the needs of the parents and the kids. And obviously Emily as a parent um, is bringing that perspective and me as a former principal bring mine. So, you know, the magic and comes me as a comes Zoomer who's addicted to herself on a bringing mine. Well, Emily, thank you for listening. There's a debate raging about junk food and federal assistance. This is like from all angles right now. There are quite a lot of moves to potentially um, promote healthy heating, eating habits via kind of saying, oh, you can't you can't use SNAP or whatever program for specific um, as Marco Rubio would like it uh, prepared desserts like cake and cookies, soft drinks, candy and ice cream. So using the, the fist of the government to withhold um, benefits on anything that they decide is not healthy for you and good for you, um, which could affect 42 million people um, on food assistance programs. And there's also um, a bill that was approved by the House GOP that would allow some states to apply their own restrictions. So it seems like this is a debate that's um, really moving and conservatives seem to be on the side of, yes, we should tie benefits to making healthier choices by and large. Yeah, I think this is related to the housing art, the discussion we had on the yeah. last episode in the sense of like using government assistance to uh, incentivize or depending on how you think coerce people into making certain choices. In that case, it was to get off drugs and to um, seek treatment for mental illness. In this case, it's making healthy food choices. Uh, I, generally speaking, uh, am okay with certain incentives, which are being debated right now. Um, Senator Roger Marshall and some Democrats seem to think, well, okay, maybe we can ma just make it cheaper to make uh, good food choices as opposed to outright banning the use of um, of these funds for unhealthy food. I'm a little bit more in favor of that. But my big problem with all of this is the federal government has a terrible track record of saying what is and is not healthy. The yeah. food pyramid, your daily allowances. Like there is I know yeah. they've reformed this recently, <laughs> but it's like for a while they were like basically like you eat a loaf only of bread eat a day. Bread. Yeah. yeah. Just <laughs> like, just be bread. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's like eating bread and, and, and fruit all day, basically. It's like you're just hopping yourself up on carbs all day is like yeah. healthy. And look, I don't even want to delve into the carbs, good, bad debate. I certainly no, we'll screw that. have no interest in that. But the thing is, the government doesn't, is has not shown itself to be a great arbiter of what great nutritional science is. So I'm not sure I would be putting this in their hands. Or what SNAP should be used for at this point in time, which is, I mean, you can't buy anything that's prepared, which I think was originally the idea was like, you're, you're buying ingredients to go home and cook. You're not supposed to be using your benefits at like a restaurant, but right. you quite literally cannot buy like a hot soup at, at the grocery store or, or prepared green beans or the, a rotisserie chicken. It's so crazy. there's, there's already insane weird things that I think we can roll back to be more permissive of what people can purchase with these. But if in this world, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying we sh you shouldn't be buying soda with snap. But benefits. I just think so it's do a, we really want to be, I mean, there's like 200 calories in it. You love to talk about the the slippery slopes. To me, it's the slippery slope. Like it, it starts with soda, then it becomes all right. Like we don't want you to have a candy bar for your kid or whatever. And I'm just like, look, like we'll buy that with your. It's like dark chocolate versus milk chocolate versus how much sugar is in it. And I'm just like, all right, like this is not for the government to do. And there's also a dignity point here. Like I don't, I'm not sure I want parents. Uh, in the supermarket, having an argument with the cashier about their yeah, food choices. I, I think that's like a, that is a place that government, like, it's just, it, it, it's, it's undignified. It's, it's, it's a terrible use of everybody's time, that cashier, that supermarket, the parent, the government. I'm not, I don't trust the government to make that choice. But I also think like within the conservative circles, there are two kinds of arguments here. So Rubio is saying, um, I'm not sure we should be subsidizing junk food. 
so that's his piece is like, oh, this is a question of the government is subsidizing the it junk food is the way he's framing is, it. Though. But then there's uh, Roger Marshall, the Republican from Kansas, who makes a different argument, which is um, he's emphasizing a different part of the libertarian argument. He's saying, should the government be in the business of coercing people on a certain diet? He says the quote, food police. Should the government be the food police? So it's interesting, like depending on how you want to frame it, you could frame it in a libertarian way of saying the government's subsidizing junk food or that the government's coercing people on a certain diet. I'm kind of with Roger Marshall on this one, which is like, I don't want the government making that choice, period. Yeah, I mean, when it, when taxpayers are funding these benefits, though, I do think that there is a degree of responsibility that we have to make sure that it's not like perpetuating what is clearly an epidemic of obesity and, and diabetes and, and metabolic disease in this country. Um, and given the fact that we already are, the government's already involved here. We're not but talking we about getting rid of it. So no, but, I, but given know, the do, fact we that we've, we're already doing something, and everywhere well, we, we already are by saying you can't get like a rotisserie chicken or soup. Like there's, no, there are, Let's roll that there back. are Let's already go in the other direction controls yeah. here that I'm, I I would rather swap those out for different ones. But, um, I, I, yeah, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say though, I, I do, I don't think that a non-diet soda should be something that you can purchase with a, with a, a snap benefit. We already say you can't purchase things like cosmetics or other, like there are, yeah, but that's not so, food. Like that to me, that's a reasonable thing. Like it's like, okay. all right, you're not, you're not buying food, but like, this is where like the government subsidizes so much. And so the yeah. question to me is like, like whenever possible, I'm a little bit skeptical when the government uses that, like that power. No, of the I, purse I am too. I'm, to change behaviors uh like this right like yeah. I, I just i just can't like these are very intimate decisions that people make about yeah. what they eat and what they don't and it's a constantly changing science like we were atkins one day and then we're keto and then we're intermittent fasting and then carbs are good and then carbs are bad and fruit is good fruit's bad like i'm just like okay dark chocolate's good dark chocolate's bad wine is good for you then wine is not good it's like you know it's like i, I don't what uh, the most you know when i listen to peter atia like some of the biggest experts on nutritional science and medicine, his chapter in his newest book about, you know, medicine and, you know, this is a John Hopkins educated physician who's like paid, you know, gazillions of dollars to the most, you know, the wealthiest people on the planet to keep them healthy. His nutritional chapter is essentially like, yeah, I'm not sure about most of this. Like, so, you know, well, Ravi, don't be too postmodernist here. I mean, we it we can't just nuke all of what we know about nutrition. Like, but what do we candy, know? Candy, candy, and know? soft drinks. I think we're pretty sure. And Cheetos. I think we're pretty but sure about those. Candy is a good those. example. I but think we're, just, okay. Candy is a good example. Like a soft drink and candy are good examples. So is Spindrift a soft drink? Like is dark chocolate a candy? Like these are the things I'm like. Should, I don't want the government should involved. Snap in that. necessarily be paying for beverages. I don't know that that should. Yeah, even I think so. I don't know. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, and like I, it was I mean, healthier yeah, but then, for you. then we're gonna say, okay, yeah, orange juice versus diet soda. Like orange juice is, is orange probably juice versus diet just soda. as uh, far more co caloric. Yeah, no, I think that, orange I think juice this versus drift, You know, or these probiotic yeah. sodas. Like I had a in here in Austin, they have this like probiotic soda that's fifty calories, right? Okay. And it has I don't a little think bit people of sugar are using, in it. You know snap benefits to buy probiotic soda but, but they could for you know. spindrift which is in almost every uh, supermarket in america right and that's zero that's calories true. from what i understand that's true. so it's like i i'm just i'm sympathetic to the issue that they're trying to solve here but i i do agree that that deregulation is probably better and opening up more doors but the the one thing that is an interesting counter argument here is that you can create incentives for for good eating choices and and basically figure out a way to make it more financially beneficial for people to use their benefits on healthier yeah, choices and there's a USDA study that found that the average person will eat point two-ish more cups of produce every day if you incentivize them. And it, it was statistically significant, which, you know, it's not huge, but at the very least we can, I'd rather be rewards oriented and incentive oriented than, than fully restrictionist. But I, I'm, yeah. I'm sympathetic though. I don't really want taxpayer dollars going to Coca-Cola. Sorry. Well, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, I think I kind of convinced you on this one. It's a rare, it's a rare one. Yeah. 
You're more libertarian than me here, but I'll give you a, a check mark. There we on, go. On this one. Uh, yeah. Well, I think we've come to the end of this. I'm going to hop downstairs and have my probiotic soda. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Rate, review, and subscribe. Remember the voicemail. Thank you, Emily from North Carolina, uh, for giving us a hard time. Our voicemail number is three two one two zero 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 five seven zero. We will be back next Tuesday, where I will hopefully be back in the great city of New York. Thank you, everybody. The Lost Debate is a part of the Branch Network. The show is produced by Mickey Ayub, research support by Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, and editing and sound design by Dean Metherell.